Welcome to New England Cross Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt. This is Jack Piatelli. We're ready to go today. It's a good day. It is a good day. New year. Great holidays. Was in Italy for uh, Christmas and New Year's uh, with my three children and uh, had a great time. And I'm back and ready to go. First face you see. Unfortunately. It's got to be tough for you. Yeah. <laughs> sure is. My I'll holidays were not as good. Uh, we went, to, we did, family decided to go to Disney in the busiest time of the year. That's a great move. I'm going to tell everybody right now, great PS, move. free PSA, do not go to Florida at all <laughs> during the holidays. Yeah. Just, just don't do it. Like, I'm sure it's a nice place at other times. <laughs> yeah. During the holidays, it was not enjoyable, but it's also, it's, it's for the children for the kids and you have a bad knee too you went to disney with the bad knee so i'm very impressed yeah. and so what do you do with all the coal you got this christmas well i saved it up yeah and yeah. i'm gonna get all my piatelli stuff and burn it okay uh, so <laughs> that's how we'll we'll transition to that but we have to bring in our guest it is the head coach of christopher newport university a perennial contender for the division three men's national championship mikey thompson coach how we doing doing great thanks so much for having me on yeah, we did. He and Coach and I have talked a little bit. I've I've written some stuff about CNU for USA Lacrosse Magazine, particularly Andrew Cook, who is a is a midfielder for the captains, is one of the best players in the country, and was actually voted best player in the country by the other person who I do rankings with, who also writes for New and Cross Journal, Dan Arestia. We just kind of did all of it, and we ranked everybody, and it was a good long All Americans. We did it all, and Coach was very generous with his time as as well as Cook or Cookie, as you all call him, which he, he informed me. Every kid, every lacrosse player named Cook, their last name, their, their nickname is Cookie, right? Like, yeah. how many guys named, who have the last name Cook are named, have a different nickname? Don't know any. None. No. Every kid I've coached his last name is Cook, his, his nickname is, is Cookie. I think one of the things I wanted to start with then is, Andrew Cook in particular is a guy that came to you from Richmond. Uh, he's kind of a local guy uh, for you guys down in Virginia. Uh, what can you tell me about his contributions last year and going into this season? Yeah, I mean, he's just one of those guys that that jumps off the page athletically. He demands a lot of attention, and he he does a great job of of sharing the ball and understanding that with all eyes on him, and he can take one step one way, and it's going to generate some sort of slide and two slide. And he just does a great job of getting to dangerous areas of the field. He's very effective in the middle of the field. He's extremely athletic. He's a competitor. You know, what you see on game day is what you see every day in practice. So that elevates the play of everyone around him as well. You know, coming in as a transfer, I think it speaks, speaks, to, speaks to the type of leader he is, that he was elevated to one of our team captains late in last season. And he's one of our captains going into this season as well. So he's just that type of player. He's that type of, that type of kid and that type of leader. And uh, we're very fortunate to have him. Yeah, when he and I were, were speaking kind of after we did the interview, I think, and maybe you can speak to this, I think he's he's a pro-level player from Division Three. He's one of the guys I think that can make the jump because athletically, it's not that far off, right? Like he already was a D1 player. And for you guys now, he's kind of gotten all the experience. And every D3 guy that goes and plays at that next level has that little that little chip, right, That's that actually you need to succeed at that level. Have you talked to him about that at all? Yeah, we have talked a little bit about it. It's something that is on his radar. And I think the, the the best news about 
that type of ambition and that type of goal is that you understand what's required to get you to that next level. And if you're willing to put in that work on a daily basis, it's going to maximize his potential for this last year. He'll be with us, but it's also going to allow him to put his best foot forward if he does get the opportunity to try out at the next level. Coach, don't know a lot about CRISPR, Christopher Newport University. I do know they have a good program and they have a very good coach. Very impressed that you've had a number of, for a program that is fairly young and, and not a lot of people in New England know a lot about, but you've had some great players come through there. Players of the year, Max Wayne, Campbell Posen, Ryan Young, and obviously Ryan Andrew Cook. What is it about your program that elevates these players to be nationally recognized? Well, I think it all starts with the recruiting process and trying to identify kids that genuinely love this game. I think especially at the D3 level, these these guys aren't getting scholarships. So everything that's being asked of them comes from a place of internal motivation and guys that genuinely love the game. They love doing the extra work that's required to get them to that level. And something I think that our staff does a pretty good job of is continuing to develop that, that love of the game. I think that some programs almost feel like it's a job or, or it's work to be a part of the program. And our guys work as hard as anybody, but I think that there's little things that we do off the field to continue to develop that love of the game because you're never going to be great at anything unless you love it. And our guys love getting out on the field. They love to hit the cage. They love to go play pickup with the small cages. A few years ago, we fundraised and got one of the outdoor box facilities. So they'll play a lot of box. So there's a lot of development that goes, that goes into becoming that type of player, but it all comes from a place of, I love this game. I want to do whatever is required for me to be the best teammate I can be and the best player that I can be. I think one of those guys I want to touch on, I actually wrote about him and I don't think anyone knew. I wrote this, this piece about, this is going to sound bad, but I mean it in the best way. Campbell Posen is the definition of the rat boy shorty who like, I, 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 it sounds like a bad term, but I mean it very affectionately. It's the guy that's involved in every single play off the wing in transition. He's in your face. And, and this is the thing about Campbell Posen. If you don't, know a ton about him he's undersized and he's like the scrappiest player i think i've ever seen at division three level he is everywhere he does not care how big you are he will go into every ground ball scrum he's fast he's mean he's awesome like he he is just such an incredible short stick d midi and now he since he has graduated from from cnu he's at high point this year and that kind of tells you like his ability to contribute on these little tunnels, right? That like players of that size and mentality create for themselves. They create the opportunity to impact the game in a way that doesn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. And that's why he was an All-American because not just as a short stick demon, he just, he was a nuisance in like the best way. Is that fair to be characterized? Yeah, absolutely. All those hidden plays. He was great off the wings. Every time that he was undersized on ball and you thought that he had no chance to win his matchup, he used that chip on his shoulder to say, I understand what I'm up against right now and I want it more than you do. 
And naturally, as a shorter defensive midi, he had no problem getting low on some of those some of those bigger Dodgers. He was always right on your hips. I will say that Campbell is one of the fastest, probably the, probably the fastest player that we've ever had. He was a phenomenal high school football player. I remember going, he's from Virginia Beach, right near CNU. And I remember going to watch him play high school football. And I was so bummed out because every time he was back there to return a kick, the team didn't kick him the ball. But he's that type of athlete, incredible feet, incredible motor. And he, like you said, he's a very gritty player that had a chip on his shoulder. Coach, you played at Virginia for one of the great coaches of all time, Dom Starzia. What things did you learn from him that you used to coach at the college level? Well, one of the main things that I say to our guys all the time that, that Coach Stars has said was that consistency is the ultimate measure of mental toughness. And in practice, I remember, and I see this in myself as a coach now, when someone makes a highlight real play and drops their hands and stings a corner, it almost doesn't even impress me to the point that the players might think it does. They probably leave practice and being like, oh, that one time I, I dropped my hands and stuck the corner, man, I'm, I'm going up the death chart now. But then the next time they don't work hard to clear their hands and they, they handcuff the, 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 the guy they're feeding. And, and that consistency of doing it right over and over and over again is ultimately the thing that we as coaches are looking for. And that's what allows you to reach a level of consistency with your wins and losses as guys that understand that. We're not looking for the home run play. We're not looking for the flashy stuff. We're really just looking for a consistency of performance and consistency of effort. And that's what comes out in your best players in practice on a daily basis. I could, I could go on and on about things that I've learned from Coach Starza, but that's one of the things I think at the forefront of our program is always searching for that consistency. Now, I believe you graduated in Virginia 2010, and were you on the coaching staff in 2011? I was. So I was in the Curry School of Education. It was a five-year program. So after exhausting my eligibility, I still had credits to finish up, and Coach Starza asked me to stick around as a student assistant coach in, in 2011. So I was fortunate to be a, a part of that 2011 championship team. Yeah. And did you know that you wanted to get into coaching or was that sort of Dom came to you and said, oh, you've got a few more classes to take and do you want to be a part of the coaching staff, part of the sideline? Is that something you thought about doing while you were playing or did you just did it because Dom offered it to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think some coaches would tell you that they always knew they were going to be a coach. I, I don't know if I necessarily fit that mold. I, I always was drawn to education and, and coaching. My dad was a longtime high school lacrosse coach, and obviously I was studying education. So I think it was the kind of thing where coach off opened a door for me, and I'm really glad that I, I, I took him up on it because after spending that year coaching at Virginia and after my experiences as a player, I just realized that it was the right path for me. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I went that route. You're also one of those coaches that landed at the place where you're the head coach now, but you were an assistant first. How much of that informed being an assistant informed you being a head coach at the same program under someone else and then succeeding them? How did that, kind of impact your head coaching journey? Well, I think one of the, the best things that happened to me as an assistant was I was given a lot of responsibility from day one. 
And I was able to learn from experience through success and through failure. And so like anything, you're, you're just, when you're thrown to the fire, you're, you're ultimately going to figure things out a little bit quicker. So I was given a lot of responsibility as an assistant and I was, I believe 26 years old when I spent my first year as a head coach. So I remember that meeting vividly. And I remember not being that much older than a lot of my seniors. And I said to our guys, Hey, we're going to have to grow up quick. So you guys are going to have to help me out here. That actually happened about a week or two before the spring season started that I became the head coach. And so starting from a place of humility and understanding that I don't know all the answers, we're going to have to figure this out as we go. That's still the mentality that I have today. But having that experience going from an assistant and, and then becoming the head coach at the same institution, I think is unique. And I've also realized that it's a real competitive advantage to really understand the place that you work at. I think that if I were to go coach somewhere else in year one, man, how much stuff is there to learn just about the way certain places operate? And I feel like I have so many great relationships at CNU at this point. I know whatever needs to get done. I need, I know who, who to go to. And I think that that's, that's been a real big advantage for me as well. Super, super underrated. I, I think you and I talked about this last time we talked, but I was an assistant for a long time before I was a head coach and learning. And I was an assistant at different schools. So you're relearning every year and that's good. But having the comfortability when you become a head coach is a totally different thing. Experiencing it as an assistant and seeing, okay, this works and this doesn't work and that works. And like you said, I need to talk to this person to get this thing done. I need to know this person admissions, this person to do all these other things. And I remember when I was named the head coach at Danny Webster, I was like, what do I do now? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to do. So it's a lot of trying to get that together. And that's a much smaller school than even CNU, the one you're at. So having that experience and being able to build knowing and recruit, I think, especially knowing what the school has, offers and is capable of is a huge advantage. And I think that's uh, like you rightly said, I think it's a huge part of your success so far. I mean, the CNU was, it, and for, for people that aren't D3 heads, right? Like people that are just, oh, I followed the NASCAC, which is a lot of people. I get it. Like, I love the NASCAC. I write about it all the time. But I think up here, we kind of concentrate on schools like that. CNU is, is one of these schools that is a legit power now in the last five years, even through COVID, alongside places like Lynchburg, Salisbury, Dickinson, schools like that, that have also come up. And so, I mean, Salisbury's kind of always been there, but schools that have risen to like meet the Northern schools. And I think that's just a testament to your ability as a coach. Yeah. And I, I also would, I would hate to fail to mention the consistency that we've had with our staff as well. Our full-time assistant, Zach Thomas, has been with me since I became the head coach in 2016. And that's pretty rare at the D3 level to be able to work with someone in that capacity for that long. And there's a lot of time that isn't wasted just because we've been doing it so long together. And there's a lot of trust there. And that staff cohesion has been a big part of our success as well. Coach, what attracts the student male lacrosse player athletes to Christopher Newport University? 
Well, I think it starts with the success of the athletic department. Just in the past three years, last year, our men's basketball team won the national championship. Our women's basketball team lost in the national championship game. Two years ago, softball won the national championship. Women's soccer won the national championship. And, and the list goes on. There's, there's a lot of support for athletics. We have great facilities for a Division three program. We have about 5,000 students here at CNU, so it's a fairly large Division three state school, which means that you get the best of the both worlds in terms of student engagement. And when we go out on game day, we have good crowds because there's a lot of students on campus, but we also get the small class sizes. So I think that those are some of the main things. It also doesn't hurt that we're about 30 minutes from the beach and we're, we're kind of in a cool location, but... I think the success of the athletic department, the emphasis on athletics, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal school. We have a really good business school here at CNU, which I think is big for lacrosse recruits. And then we're a state school. So we get a lot of very, very talented players from Virginia who probably could go play on scholarship in division one, but it might cost their family less money to play high level division three at a great school like CNU. Yeah, I saw your roster there, and you have a number of players that are from Virginia. So that makes a lot of sense that they're going to stay in state and save quite a bit of money, and they, they'll get a good education and have an opportunity to play at a high level and maybe have an opportunity to play sooner than than later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that most high, most Division three coaches would tell you that at some point in the recruiting process, you have a conversation with that recruit and the opportunity to play high level division three lacrosse is hard to, is hard to pass up. You get the, you get a great education. You get the opportunity to win a lot of games, to have some really cool experiences. And the types of kids that we're recruiting are having opportunities to play at the division one level. And we never speak badly about any division one program or that experience everywhere is different, but sometimes you just have to you have to explain to them all the benefits of the Division three route. What do a number of your players study and, and what do they go on to do after Christopher Newport? I would say that a large majority of our guys are, are doing the Luter School of Business. You apply for that at the end of your sophomore year and then kind of choose which major within the business school that you want to do from there. We have a large alumni base in the D.C. area, again, because we have a lot of guys coming from Northern Virginia. Uh, but but after after that, we have we have guys going coming from everywhere now, which has been cool to see having kids from Colorado and Michigan and Florida and, and, and all over the place. And some of those guys are choosing to, to go back home as well. But we have a smaller alumni base just based on when we started as a program. But we have a very engaged alumni base. I mean, our guys are really excited to see the trajectory of the program. We have a lot more guys that are staying local and, and living in Virginia Beach. They'll come back and do the color commentary for our live streams and stuff like that. So it's almost been easier for me to capture momentum within our alumni group because I coach most, most of them. And while we're not the biggest alumni base, they are very engaged and we want to continue that. I would recommend watching a CNU stream for that reason. I think, I think D3 streams are very risky, right? In terms of having guys calling the game that always know what they're doing. The CNU streams are very good. Lynchburg's usually really good. Salisbury's really good. 
that kind of area does produce that level of production that it like video production that's at a quality that not I wouldn't say rivals D1 but is is there like it's not completely absent and I think you know talking about last season this is a team that went 19 and 3 they were 10 and 0 at home like you guys made it a fortress and you're one of those teams that were you know I don't know it's a cliche to say but like it's fun to watch like like captains of the cross fun to watch man like you got guys flying all over the place your offense is very controlled, tons of movement, which I really love watching. If I was going to say, hey, there, here's a school to watch if we're trying to run guys coming off the crease, coming up, trying to create their own shot, but also spinning the ball through X, I would say CNU is one of those offenses I would watch. What's your kind of take on that? Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think us having a style of play that kids want to play in and it's it's fun to play in is really important to us it goes back to the amount of pickup and free play that we that we install throughout the course of the year and having defensive guys that are comfortable pushing the pace and defensive middies that know their job is not to get off the field right away but it's to create advantages in the middle of the field and maybe in the substitution game that's that stuff that definitely is really important to us with the six on six on the offensive side of the ball, we really focus on about five or six principles of our offense. And there's definitely a box influence to our offense. We really prioritize moving the ball. We want to have more passes per possession than the average team for sure and create high quality looks with off of assisted shots. And there's not quite as much of the traditional motion downhill alley hunting alley shot hunting that, that that maybe we used to see in the past. We're seeing a lot more offense with this style, I think, these days. But, you know, our goal is to put guys in positions where they're going to be successful and to develop chemistry amongst those players throughout the course of the year. And one of my favorite things as a coach is to see a group of midfielders over on the sideline during practice. They're about to go out for their next six on six rep. And they're talking about what type of pick action or what type of three-man action they want to run to spark the offense to try and create an advantage. So there's a lot of freedom within the offense. There's a, a big, a big two-man, three-man influence to our offense as well. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to create high percentage shots. And we want to be attacking from the time we get the ball on the defensive end. So you have your transition phase, then we have our our early offense phase with our rope guys still on. And then we have a phase where we're kind of coming downhill right at you, doing doing stuff in space. Then we have some stuff east-west. That's more of our two-man stuff. And then we have a few, a few actions that will run big little behind the goal as well so that we're attacking from all different angles throughout the course of a possession. And the hope is that at some point during all of those phases, all of those waves of offense, we're going to get a pretty good look at the cage. Last year, you had two of the most incredible OT games, I think, that I've seen. I saw all season. And I know everyone's going to talk about the Dickinson one because that's the the one that you and I talked about. It was in the playoffs, and they ended up winning an OT, even though, as you said, you did a coach move where you called the timeout as the ball was kind of bobbling, and then uh, Andrew Cook just hammered it in. But again, it's fine. He got the ball back. You guys got the ball back, and you scored anyway to win. But the game I want to talk to you about is the Lynchburg game because I remember watching that and being like, oh, Lynchburg is really good. And then getting to OT and Lynchburg having the ball the whole time and me being like, oh, this is bad. This is bad. And then them turning it over 
you guys turning it over, them turning it over. It was a, a turnover fest. And then finally, you got the look that you needed to win the game and you won it. How many years did that game take off your life? Because watching it, all I could think about was the co- the coaches on both teams, like you and Kadelka, just being like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Because it's everything. It's not It's not bad. It's not like before, the errors were were forced most of the time. But you're watching it, you're just like, no, no. It didn't matter who you were rooting for. It's just one of those games that just gives you anxiety. <laughs> oh, like, what was that like for you in the moment coaching that game? Yeah, it, unbelievable game, unbelievable environment. I think that both of the games you referenced, the the coaching from a coach's perspective, I don't know that we necessarily deserve to win either of those. If I'm being honest, I think one of the things we talk about with our guys is that we don't ever want to beat ourselves. We want to make the opponent earn earn everything. And I think a lot of a lot of a big portion of those games we had a lot of self-inflicted wounds unfortunately, but you know, at the end of those games, it's just about having players that are confident enough to step up and make those types of plays. And thinking back to that Lynchburg game, I think the thing that some people forget is that they were man up and our goalie, Zach Hamway, on the first pass of that man up possession, jumped out of the goal and intercepted a pass from the low wing to X. And that's what got us the ball back. Then he threw it to Campbell Posen. He ran all the way down the field. We were man down. And there was a little bit of a scramble at the midline. And that's ultimately what led to that goal. But I watched that film just the other day and and seeing Hamway and the goal just slightly starting to lean. I didn't tell him to do that. No one told him to do that. But he was like, if I get the opportunity, I'm jumping out of the goal if they're not paying attention. And what an unbelievable play from from Zach Hamway to get us the ball and and win that game. Coach, you certainly brought a lot of attention to your program in the last few years. You have 56 players on your roster in 2023. Is that a number you want to continue to go with, with 56, 55, 56 players? Or is it something you want to decrease in numbers going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And I always am transparent with with recruits about the past few years, I think one of the hardest things as a coach post-COVID has been roster management. We're we're fortunate here to have a couple grad grad programs, but one in particular, it's a one-year master in financial analysis. And so we have a big chunk of grad guys this year that are getting their masters in one year while finishing their eligibility. And so so our roster is bigger than than it has been in the past, and it's not going to be as big as it is this year and next year. Next year, we graduate uh, basically a whole class of graduate students and a whole class of seniors. So we'll come back down to earth probably about at that 50, 52, maybe max 55. But um, we also didn't want to be a program that recruited kids and had a big tryout and then cut the guys that weren't there. We wanted to show commitment to our recruits. Obviously, there's no job in America that you get and don't have to do anything to keep. We're not that type of program either. You have to be a great teammate every day. But understanding that we're going to lose a class of graduate students and a class of seniors, the last thing we wanted to do was start cutting underclassmen. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive turnover going into the 2025 season. So long answer to your question, but I think the context of the extra years of eligibility is important in our case. Looking at 2024, obviously we've kind of talked about you guys being 
mentioned as a national contender, you play in the CLC, which is the same conference as the boogeyman known as Salisbury. How have your games against Coach Berkman been? Because I've talked to a couple people and they're like, yeah, we, I thought we had them, like the teams that have played really well against them and then they lose and then someone just goes, oh yeah, you got Berkman. Like, have you, how do you feel like he's one of the best coaches in the, in the world of lacrosse? How, how is that, how is it going up against him and all of his experience and, and championships out of Salisbury? Well, CNU lacrosse would not be what we are today without the rival of Salisbury over the years. Knowing that we're going to play them at least once a year, sometimes two times a year, in some cases, three times a year. And in 2021, we played them four times. Well, wow. it is the type of challenge that brings out the best in your guys. And it brings out the best in your preparation. And you can't just roll into that game and think that you're going to come out with a win unless you earn it every single time. And so I've, I've been at CNU since I was at UVA in 2011. That was 2012. I remember some games against Salisbury where we knew going into the game, there, there was basically no chance that we were going to win. And coincidentally, I think it was 2014, we beat Salisbury and we weren't even ranked. I think they were ranked first or second. We beat them at home and it was still one of the biggest wins in program history. But Coach Berkman's never forgotten that day, that's for sure. And every time CNU plays Salisbury, they're ready for us. There's a lot of familiarity between the programs. And you just know that you need to bring your best every single day. And as a competitor and as a coach, what more could you ask for? So we love the challenge. We love how much better we've gotten because of that challenge. And it just continues to, to drive us to be the best that we can be. Have you had any like personal interactions with him like before or after games that are particularly memorable? Not really, to be honest. I mean, Coach Berkman and I have a have a have a really good relationship and I have so much respect for him. He's one of the greatest lacrosse coaches of all time at any level. I mean, look at what he's done and and there's little things here and there. He's the ultimate competitor and but I think more so than anything, there's a lot of respect there and I guess I just have to keep doing this for long enough until he's not coaching anymore. <laughs> That's it might be tough. I don't know. He's dude, the guy's like guys had like heart attacks and stuff. He's still in it. He's running marathons and stuff. He is he's a, he's a madman. It's great. Like he's so good for D3 lacrosse. You know what I mean? Like he's just one of those guys that gets presence. He's a he's a constant. But and I think the other thing looking at your schedule going through it your out of conference schedule is crazy. Like it, it's, it's gotta be one of the highest RPIs in the country in terms of division three. If division three ever did RPI, which they won't, they just rely on us as journalists to try and create it for them with ranks. But I mean, you've got Hamden, Sydney, Owu, Stevenson, you're playing Tufts this year, coming up here to play Tufts. By the way, let me put that on my calendar. Got to see that game. Got a rematch with Dickinson. You're playing St. Lawrence and also playing Williams again and Lynchburg. Are a lot of those, do you find it difficult to schedule or is it just easier because a lot, you, you only have six teams in your conference? Well, it's a good question. I think that it would be a lot easier if we had a large conference because then there wouldn't be as many out of conference games to schedule. But 
that's one of the benefits of having a smaller conference is you get a lot of flexibility with who you schedule out of conference and finding that balance between home games and away games and really strong opponents and opponents that maybe you'll be able to develop your depth a little bit more, I think is, is something that I've actually have a lot of experience in because of the amount of conference change that we've had over the years. We have to work pretty hard in scheduling. And so really excited about our schedule this year. We, we, all, we all just want to be at our best at the end of the season. That's, that's always the goal. And whatever we can do to sharpen the sword throughout the regular season is going to help us later in the year. And the guys want to play the best teams in the country. That's, that's what they come here to do. And, and we're really excited about, about all those games that we have. Coach, I had the opportunity to go down to the IMCLA convention, and obviously there was a lot of buzz going around about the face-off and possible changes to the face-off and what to do to make the game better, I, I suppose, wh- whatever side you're on. What are your thoughts of, of the face-off and, and some of the concepts they've discussed in the last month or so? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I personally... I personally love the face-off. I think that the face-off athlete is really important to the overall identity of our sport. I think that those guys are tough. I think that they bring a level of physicality and grit to the game that otherwise we wouldn't have if we were just pulling the ball out of the back of the net and clearing it. I think that part of the argument was for there's no other place on the field where you can't clamp. I, I don't really see that one. I think that clamping with the back ear stick happens everywhere. In my perfect world, I think that we would go back to the pre-COVID face-off mechanics with the officials where they literally put the ball down and they make sure that the sticks are aligned properly before they step away. That minimizes the cheating. And I think that if the officials are consistent with checking the heads of the face-off guy's sticks, then that, that fixes a lot of the issues as well. Sticks aren't going to be getting warped. Face-off guys are going to be held accountable to making sure that their stick is legal. And while it might take away some of the current moves that the guys are doing with the plungers and essentially warping their stick around the ball, then I think it puts a little bit more accountability on the stick manufacturers to make face-off heads that are stiff enough. And then you go back to the kind of the old school two-way midi, maybe, maybe is back in the picture a little bit more, but you know, Coaching with the Cannons this summer, I thought the the post face off win was a little bit quick. I mean, we ended up being one of the teams that put a pull out there just because we felt really comfortable playing that much defense and getting stops and then having a full a full shot clock at the at the other end. So I don't know that you need to be that drastic at the college level, but I also think that sixty seconds is plenty of time. So if the if the game ends up going to sixty seconds post face off win. You know, as you see in the program, if that's at 52, I think that's plenty of time to create great offense. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's the right side and the wrong side of that argument. And the right side is keep the face off. The wrong side is get rid of it. I I, I don't understand why. And this is the second podcast in a row that I'm going to rant on this. I just, I don't understand why you want to get rid of it. It's one of the things that makes lacrosse great and different, right? Like everyone's like, oh, well, in other sports, they don't do it. Like, yeah, that so? You know, like, don't take away the identity of it. If you want that, go go play sixes. Like, the college game as well with recruiting is, it's a lot of, it's a Game of Thrones with face-off guys, man. Like, it, it, if you have a really tough face-off group, your job is harder. 
but it's also your job to not have a tough face-off group. Like it's part of the recruiting process. And there are so many, now we see at the division one level, especially there are so many coaches that are face-off specialists. Like there are guys just being hired on and giving, getting work. And that's great. Get work where you can get it in lacrosse, man. I'm, I'm, I'm behind you to just coach face-off guys. And I think at the division three level, you have less of that. There's, there's less opportunity for that. But if you recruit the right way, and you have a face-off guy as part of your agenda, you should be fine. It's not one of those things that I feel like back in the day when people were cheating a lot before they switched to just the, the knee up, right? Before they did that, it's a lot of cheating, a lot of rolling, a lot of leaning, a lot of, a lot of stick manipulation. I feel like you're just trying to fix something that isn't broken, right? Like, am I, am I off base with that? I don't know. I think that I like the two-way midfielder myself. I like, I'm not saying get rid of the face-off when I'm saying I think it needs some some adjustments. I think it needs to be an even playing field where there's no great advantage to one team over another based on the clamp. Really? Yes. What? But like, then what's the point of recruiting good face-off guys? Well, you, you, you recruit good wing guys and ground ball guys and good athletes because when, when, that was a long time ago, coach. But when I played at Springfield College, the sticks would be maybe an inch apart, and it was just you just raked. And the best the best midfielders would would face off because they were good ground ball guys, they were good athletes, and they'd get the ball to the wing guy, and the wing guy had to come up. So it, it was always fifty fifty, which I think it makes it a little more exciting. I don't know, man. I I took draws in college, and it was like just a thing you had to do. Like if you were gonna. If you were going to try and win and like your face-off guy is not winning, like get the best athlete or get, get someone else to give it a try that has quick hands. And it was the same thing, like played, didn't have a, a really good third backup goalie. It's not a problem anymore, but it was back when teams were only 25 players. I th- I just think it's like, it's nonsensical to take it out and change every single thing that this generation of face-off guys have learned and make it, okay, you've paid 10 grand. You don't have to learn all this with your club teams. And now like, oh yeah, yeah. You know that thing you spent all that money on? You can't do that in college now. The whole point of you paying that money. I don't like that. I think that's like not a great thing for lacrosse, but coach. Yeah. I think if we're able to move back to the the pre-COVID mechanics, that limits the cheating as much as possible. And I think that if we were to make an adjustment, just just checking the sticks of the face-off guys, will naturally limit the the amount that they're warping their sticks. And then they become guys that are able to handle the ball a little bit more and handle the pressure. I just think that some of the best goals, some of the best action that you see in our sport is created off of a face-off. I mean, I think you're taking out a big chunk of the transition game and the unsettled game and the ground ball play when all of a sudden someone springs loose and he's going down on a 54 or a 43 off of the face-off. I just, I love that part of the game and I would hate to see it go. And when 2019, our team was 26% facing off. So we were, we were, I think 12, 12 and seven that year. And it was, it was, it was wild. It was a lot of pole facing off right into a 10 man ride. Every trick in the book, we, I think we led the country and caused turnovers that year. So it's not something that I liked to do. I don't ever recommend it. If you have a situation where you have a bunch of injuries there and you don't have a face-off guy. The past two years, we've had an All-American who's gotten us a ton of possessions, and that's obviously preferred. But I think that if it's fair and if you 
do your do your due diligence with the recruiting and then everybody's going to going to continue to like that as a part of the game unless you're one of those teams that's 26% like we were in 2019 and then you just got to figure it out for a year. Coach, you talked about consists being consistent creates greatness really and what's funny I I got an email from a parent a couple of weeks ago saying that she was offended by one of our coaches because she told the kids in an he told the kids in an email that we we're going to continue to work on our fundamentals fundamentals and she said well he doesn't have to work on his fundamentals because he's beyond that stage and which which just blew me away cuz so many parents and players don't understand i'm sure when you go to the college level right what do you work on shooting catching dodging focus on that as much as you, you want to get better every single day and parents and 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 players don't understand that you got to continue to get better and have the drive to get better, whether it's playing other sports, so on and so forth, but master the fundamentals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the fundamentals, all that also translates into decision-making. I mean, I think your sure. ability, your ability to make decisions with context is one of the most important things in our program. And I think the higher you get in level, the more you can then go back and practice on air. For example, the pros, they might not need a ton of context. They might, might not need a defender on them at all times, or they might not need to be doing two-on-twos and four-on-fours. They can actually visualize what they're working on better than a young player can. And sure. so putting those players in situations where they have to constantly make decisions and play and make mistakes and figure it out on their own, I think is one of the best ways for young players to develop. And then as you get older and older and more skilled and more experienced, then you can actually start to hammer those, 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 those fundamentals more without context, if that makes sense. Coach, final question. Everybody knows, including your players, that you're a contender for the national championship in Division Three. What do you say to them your first day of practice? that kind of helps you get to that goal? Well, first of all, just being unapologetic about what our, what our goals are. And this is a group that um, we had players on this current team that were starters in the 2021 Final Four game against Salisbury. Zach Hanway was in the goal. Ryan Young was starting on defense. Kobe Oslander was on a wing. Aiden Wheeler was on a wing. Zach Sands was taking face-offs. Alex Brindes was our lefty attackman and Drew Miller was our ex-attackman. That was a long time ago. And those guys were in big moments and, and they played in a lot of big games. They've done so much to move our program in the right direction. And we are very open about the fact that we haven't achieved what we want to achieve yet. We haven't won a conference championship. We haven't won a national championship. And that is something that is going to drive us every day that, you know, when you, when you make a goal like that, you understand that you just, you put it out there and you're unapologetic about it. You're transparent about it. But then every single day that drives you to do the work required to continue getting better every day. It's not like you just wait until that moment and you think it's going to happen. You kind of keep it in the background and know that if that's truly what you're all about and that's truly what you want to do, then you have to bring a an, an uncommon level of work and focus and discipline to everything that you're doing every single day. Coach, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was 
Excellent. Great to talk to you and great to kind of get you out to our to our audience and maybe we'll we'll get you some more New England guys down there. That sounds great. We would love that. Coach, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great job. Really appreciate it. Good luck with your season, Coach. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to New England Cross Journals, Chasing the Goal Podcast. For Jack Piatelli, I'm Kyle Devitt. See you next time.